guns and money. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 56 of Conduct Detrimental. I'm your co-host, Daniel Wallach. Along with me is my co-host, Dan Lusk. Welcome back, Dan. How are you? I'm good, Dan. It's been about a week apart. Maybe maybe I missed you a little bit at this point, Dan. I'm not, I don't know what this feeling is, but we, I haven't seen you in about a week. Yeah, but the week does go by quickly. I think we recorded in the middle of last week, so it really is only about a five or six day swing. Normally, when I introduce the episodes, as a wacko Giants fan, I normally assign a, a uniform number to the episode number. And when we, when we get into the hundreds, I won't be able to do that anymore. But when you think of number 56, who comes to mind? I might have aged myself. Is that LT over there? Was there a shred of even a little bit of doubt over that? Well, I don't know what you're thinking, Dan. Sometimes you go on these things. I don't know. LT made sense to me. Yeah, the the greatest defensive player to ever play in the National Football League. So if we're going to do 55, Gary Reasons, 54, Andy Hedden, 53, Harry Carson, we've got to fill out the linebacking core with the great LT. And we're not at the end of the great giant linebackers. We still have a few numbers left over. So anyway, what do we have on? tap for our audience this week. It's another dynamic week in the world of sports law for sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, we we recorded last week on Tuesday and we predicted it. We said that this would be the red wedding of college football. So, you know, Dan and, I, and myself, we uh, did a couple radio spots across the country. Obviously, I had great pleasure going on ESPN National, Sirius XM. But it's really this kind of, we'll say this onion of, of what's going to happen in college sports. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't lead in with college sports, which still remains very much in flux. So number one, Dan, we'll talk about the current state of affairs in college football that will encompass Justin Fields, his waiver petition, the last of an FBS commissioner and what's going on, maybe a looming litigation against a Big 12 commissioner. So that's number one. Number two, Dan, is an interesting decision that you flagged out of the sports betting world, the the categorization of FanDuel and DFS winnings as being taxable through the IRS, which I definitely want to get into. And then number three, I thought a fun story out of the NBA bubble. Obviously, the playoffs have started. The composition of these bubbles has changed because we've obviously lost some teams. Devin Booker and the Suns have sent home and the NBA, and I think is taking a calculated risk, but they're going to be allowing that bubble to be replaced by family members, but not casual relationships. So we'll get into that. And then last but not least, we'll look ahead, see what's going on, Dan, on the Mets front with A-Rod, Steve Cohn. It seems to be getting a little dirty over there with some barbs. But that being said, Dan, let's start off in the college football world. The news today, as we sit here on Tuesday, August 18th, is that college football will be played. There are six conferences that are in in Division One uh, FBS football and four that are out. The four that are out are Pac-12, the Big 10, the Mountain West Conference, and the MAC. There is some talk, and we can get into it, that the Big Ten might not be dead. There might be a pulse. It's like, uh, Dan, I know we talk about wrestling gifs. There's this nice little gif of the Undertaker like sitting up in his in his casket. There is a pulse for the Big Ten, possibly. So, Dan, what are your overall thoughts on the college football landscape? Well, the news that jumps out to me is North Carolina students come back to campus, and now there are 135 positive cases of COVID-19 on the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill campus. It's gotten so bad that the student newspaper, in a headline, referred to it as a clusterfuck. And not my words, but but real, you know, c- collegiate journalists use that word. And, you 
you know, obviously, you know, when you have a number of universities are going to virtual and, and to, you know, remote learning, but still have an expectation of playing football. So it does create a disconnect between how the student body is treated and how, you know, student athletes or intercollegiate athletes are elevated as being more important and a necessary casualty for the almighty dollar. But the North Carolina story was absolutely jarring to me. And if you needed any proof that there was a real high risk associated with putting college students together in one atmosphere, whether it be for learning or for collegiate football, where you have 85 scholarship players, the news this week out of UNC Chapel Hill is, you know, should send chills down the spine of any parent, any president, any chancellor who is thinking about risk management and risk avoidance. It is a situation that is rife for years and years of litigation if this isn't dealt with in a very cautious manner. And by by cautious, I mean no football. Dan, I posted that link, that newspaper headline on, on my various forms of social so people want to check that out. Interesting. I mean, just so that word pun shouldn't be, you know, left uh, remiss. I mean, these were clusters of COVID tests that popped up on campus. The news today, 135 positive tests on North Carolina. They've only been open for a week. So that is some indication of the potential liability that would result. Now, UNC, we should mention, is in the ACC. And the ACC is planning to play football. Part of the narrative that developed last week is just as the legal conversation. We should we should have this talk. Dan, how is it possible that doctors can have two completely varying opinions on the same type of data? You have doctors telling the Big Ten and the Pac-12 it's not safe to play college football. You know, in a sense, they're saying that your liabilities will exceed anything that good will come of football. And on the other end, from the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12, their doctors, and I, I read an opinion from the Duke's doctor, uh, that I guess the head doctor the ACC is listening to, that it is safe to play college football. Again, just like we are looking in the political context, two people are looking at this, the same data and analyzing it very differently. I think it's kind of important to know that this isn't really atypical in the legal sphere, right? You could have dueling experts saying the exact opposite things, but now we're in a world where college football is dependent really on the doctors. It's not dependent on... You know, the necessarily, you know, the sole opinion of the players. You know, that Dan, uh, that takes me to where, yeah. you know, I, I found really interesting. I know we wanted to talk about this. Justin Fields, he's the quarterback of Ohio State. He's, by all indications, probably going to be the number two quarterback in the selection in the upcoming draft. Number one being, obviously, Trevor Lawrence that we've spoke about. And now Justin Fields is having his own fingerprints on the college football discussion. He started the petition on Sunday night that was to basically save college football. And it was a petition to reinstate the season or otherwise la- allow athletes to transfer off campus without any type of having to sit out for a year. Dan, last I checked that petition, got about 250 signatures, you know, in its first day. So Dan, what are, what are your thoughts really on how this Justin Fields petition impacts the landscape, if, if at all? 250,000. Well, here's the thing, you know, athletes can always withhold their services, but collegiate athletes are powerless to force athletic conferences, schools to play football. It's a little bit too late in the time continuum right now. We're in the middle of August. College football season begins in a couple of weeks. This kind of dramatic reversal isn't going to happen on the basis of a, of a signature campaign. These are decisions that are going to be made at the at the conference and at the school level, and the conferences have really made their decision already. And as private associations, their decisions really are almost, you know, just impervious to a legal challenge. Their decisions are accorded significant deference if this were ever to go to court. So I can't envision a scenario where a student, a parent, a coach, or some, you know, collegiate representative has standing to force the Big Ten to play college football. That's just not going to happen. I think what we're seeing here is more, you know, in the nature of statements 
symbolic gestures, some of it political, some of it personal. These people, they want to play and they have a legitimate bona fide reason to want to play. But this is a pandemic and these decisions and calls have to be made by those responsible for the welfare of the students, athletes, and those who come into contact with either of those categories. And it's not going to be up to a college quarterback, Trevor Lawrence or anyone else, to dictate conference policy on this issue. This is life and death. You've talked about dueling experts in a litigation where you can always find, you can find in almost any case, two experts to disagree on something that shouldn't be a matter of dispute because that's the way litigation goes. That's your friend, Mr. Green there. That's very important. Yeah. What I mean by Mr. Green isn't simply the fact that the experts are receiving money, but in the cases in which expert testimony proves to be important. Those are civil lawsuits regarding monetary liability. Here we're in the world of not just monetary consequences, but health, life, safety, and potential severe long-term health consequences. This should not be a battle of dueling experts. Uh, when we're talking about life and death, the, you know, the experts should kind of fall out on the side of caution here rather than putting up the green light. So I think it's disturbing that you have medical experts disagreeing on the on the you know feasibility of these athletes congregating in, in one place and playing football and not spreading a virus. If we've learned anything from the episodes from the St. Louis Cardinals and the Miami Marlins, if professional athletes can't rein in their behavior and their excesses and not go to coffee shops, clubs, or strip bars, or in the case of an NBA player, I guess it was a strip club, how are we to expect a heightened level of behavior from college athletes in the 18 to 20 21 age range who aren't playing in bubbles. So just to kind of, you know, push back then, I mean, disturbing is one thing, but we don't know exactly what the analysis was. I'm sure, you know, if you ask these doctors, they would say, ideally, the safest way to play football during a pandemic is to not play at all. But if the question being asked of them is maybe it's a disturbing question, but this is probably it. Do the liabilities that would could potentially come, the potential hit from a lawsuit, do those liabilities exceed the revenue? And then separately, again, the long term ramifications on the conference, if you don't play in terms of recruiting in terms of fan base. That's a question probably the doctors only factor into a small part of that. That's more on the commissioners. But I imagine if you ask the doctor, you put them under oath, Dan, and you allow attorneys like yourself and me to cross-examine them. There is no safe way to play football during a pandemic. The safest way is to not play at all. Short of a bubble, which, you know, I think the NBA shocked everybody, zero positive tests. And now we're a couple months in. So, Dan, that, that brings what I think the Interesting part of all of this and where we go on the college football landscape. Kevin Warren is an attorney. He's the commissioner of, of Big Ten football. Uh, he worked for a law firm, Greenberg Trawing, for a number of years and represented the Minnesota Vikings. And then the Will family took Mr. Warren and then put him in their legal department for the Minnesota Vikings for about 14 years. Why do I talk about Warren? He was then handpicked a couple months ago to run the Big Ten Conference to be their commissioner. Last week, we talked about our fellow Dan, Dan Patrick, talking about a 12 to 2 vote that happened in the Big Ten Conference. There's some reports that maybe that vote didn't happen. And now there's people with that were in that room, particularly the Minnesota president, is saying, oh, well, it wasn't necessarily a vote. It was a conversation that Kevin Warren was leading, and we all agreed. And then there's other reports from anonymous sources that Warren made a decision alone to cancel college football, and then everybody else just kind of agreed, and he wanted everyone to have a kind of a unified consensus front. So where that leaves us, Dan, today, August 18th, there are parents of these athletes have demanded answers from Kevin Warren and the Big Ten. 
how this decision came to be. There's questions that you and I were just talking about, how the medical played in, how the revenue played in, how the you know recruiting played in, what that decision was. Now, Dan, to your point, parents don't really have any legal authority, but there's a, this kind of unspoken thing. Donor money is control the school. So you have to appease these people. So to some extent. So I'm just going to read you a quote. It looks like there's no confirmation on this, but there's a, a very famous college football attorney. His name is Tom Mars. People might remember that name. He represented Justin Fields when he was transferring from Georgia to Ohio State to petition the NCAA to not make Justin Fields, who we just talked about, you know, he's a very high level college football player, to not sit out a year from having to transfer from Georgia to Ohio State. So now Tom Mars is back in the news, Dan. He's talking about filing legal papers against the Big Ten. And I'm just going to quote from an interview he had yesterday on SiriusXM College Sports. Quote, I'm on the verge of coordinating a massive request for emails, text messages, presentations, and financial analysis from all member institutions in the Big Ten. And they'll be required to produce those under freedom of information statutes. And then he goes on to say, either they're going to give them to me there, or I'm going to sue them for violating freedom of information, FOIL, as uh, we call it over here in New York. Dan, what are your what are your overall thoughts on, on where this goes, and if there's any legitimacy to what Tom Mars plans to do? Well, I, I think it might be DOA, the Big Ten. Are we talking about the Big Ten here? That's a yeah. private association. This is not a public agency that has any um, transparency obligations with respect to public records requests. They're not an agent of the state. It's a private association whose internal affairs and internal decision making is not anybody's business but the member institution. So I think there's a fair amount of posturing here by a lot of interested parties, but unfortunately not parties that have any legal standing in which to demand such things. And I want to get back to Kevin Warren for a second. As a first year a conference commissioner, he's in a really difficult spot here because he's made his decision. If he wavers or equivocates or backs down from this, he's going to be a one and done, just like a lot of the college you know, student athletes who go play their freshman year and then declare for the draft. But he's not going to have any draft to, to enter. He's going to be done as, a, as an effective major conference commissioner if he waffles like like this. There are not going to be any change circumstances that allow him to change his decision. The the circumstances are either static or they're getting worse. Right. Now nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Yeah. So to, to waver here makes him look incredibly weak. And I think he has very little choice as a first year commissioner than to stand his ground. Personally, I think he's right. I think he made the right decision, but it's going to show uh, he, he's going to need a lot of strength and fortitude to not buckle under to all the public pressure being foisted upon him by, you know, donors, parents, student athletes, maybe even some college presidents and chancellors. He's got to hold his ground. And I think this is really going to be a test of Kevin Warren's effectiveness as a conference commissioner. I mean, we had another first year commissioner who faced a similar test and his name was Adam Silver. And when presented with the controversy known as Donald Sterling, Silver passed it with flying colors. Like banned for life. But keep going. Not as an edict. Uh, yeah, yeah, he he did he did impose discipline immediately, but he took. Yep, he took leadership of the situation immediately, made an unequivocal decision, stood by it, and never wavered. Kevin Warren, on the other hand, now has made his decision. It's the right decision, but unfortunately, as a new commissioner, someone without a very high profile and maybe not a lot of standing or relationships in the collegiate sports industry, he's in a much more difficult spot than than Adam Silver, but he's got to hold his ground. Otherwise, he's going to be rendered totally ineffective as a commissioner. So I'm going to leave you with one last nugget for our listeners. And I want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Tina Butera over on Twitter, who's been on top of this. 
Kevin Warren has a son who's playing for Mississippi State that's in the SEC conference, and he's playing football. Not the optics of it's not safe for the Big Ten to play, but it's safe for my son to play in the SEC. Interesting. I'm not, you know, I'm not commenting either way, but interesting. So he's definitely in hot water. That story is is not going to go away any time soon. And uh, Tom Mars has said that transparency, that's what's lacking with the Big Ten decision. So we'll see what happens on that regard. So now, Dan, moving on to our second topic, one that is near and dear to, to you and, and your you know personal practice in the sports betting space. This new decision and the new IRS ramifications of FanDuel winnings and DFS winnings, this could mean a lot to to betters. I mean, it escaped you know, real tough tax ramifications for years, but it looks like the tides might be changing again. So so what are your takes on the situation and kind of what's transpired to fill our, our listeners in? I wouldn't look at it as the daily fantasy sports industry escaping ramifications. I think the IRS memo from a lawyer within the Internal Revenue Service isn't binding on anybody or any court, and it doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny as I've taken a much closer look at it. This is an analysis over whether these daily fantasy sports contest entry fees, the entry fees that all the DFS players contribute to be part of the, the contests, whether those are taxable wagers. And if they are taxable wagers, the IRS is going to want a cut of them in the sense that if it's an authorized wager under state law, the the tax would be one quarter of 1% on an authorized wager. If it's an unauthorized wager, the tax would be 2%. For companies that are engaged in daily fantasy sports going back 10 years of offering entry fees, this could potentially create 8 to $9 million exposure. But I believe that the IRS memo is much ado. I wouldn't say much ado about nothing, but I believe its impact has been greatly overblown in the press. Some lawyers are recklessly forecasting you know, the demise of the fantasy sports industry. Not us, Dan. Not us. And that the next step to go from unauthorized to illegal is a very small jump. And I think those were statements don't hold up under any kind of reasonable scrutiny. They, they were what I would consider hyperbole from lawyers who I think relish anything bad happening within the daily fantasy sports community. And I certainly was one of those lawyers. I haven't been somebody who's been seen as an ally of the DFS industry. But let me tell you why the IRS got it wrong. Their whole supposition of a contest entry fee being a wager flies in the face of how wagers are defined under case law. A wager, the Internal Revenue Code does not define wager. It has no working definition. It simply defines it in a very circular fashion. A wager means a wager on a sporting event. Well, thank you very much. That's not very helpful. And what the IRS lawyer did to fill that void was to consult the Random House Dictionary definition of wager to essentially impose a nine-figure, potentially nine-figure assessment on, on an industry based on how Random House defines wager. Well, I've got a lot to say about that because there are there is nearly a century worth of case law which defines wager, and, and it's really well settled. And a wager essentially presupposes an agreement between two, two or more people in which each bears the risk of profit or loss loss based on the outcome of the sporting event. It essentially requires, uh, you know, the, the operator have skin in the game in that depending on the outcome of the sporting event, they either win or they lose. So that if the if the better bets money and loses the contest, the operator keeps the money. And if the better
better wins, the operator pays him. In daily fantasy sports, you do not have an operator with any interest in the outcome of the sporting event or contest. FanDuel and, and DraftKings are completely agnostic to who wins or loses the games or how many yards a particular uh, you know, running back or wide receiver accumulates. They have absolutely no assumption of risk or loss on the outcome of the sporting events. And, and the reason why that's very important is that in order to be liable for wagering excise tax, the person or company has to be in the business of accepting wagers. And that term is defined both as a matter of statute, case law, and legislative history to require that the person be engaged in the business of accepting wages for profit as a principle with the assumption of a risk of profit or loss depending upon the outcome of the game. And that just does not exist in the daily fantasy sports environment that only exists with respect to house banked traditional sports betting. If you place a bet with William Hill and you lose, they keep your money. If you win, they pay you. That's a wager. DFS doesn't work that way. And nearly every single judicial decision which has addressed the question of whether contest entry fees are a better wager have concluded that these entry fees aren't bets or wagers, but are merely purses, prizes, or premiums that fall outside the definition of bet or wager. And the leading case on that subject is a Las Vegas Supreme Court ruling in uh, a case called Las Vegas versus Hacienda. And the Third Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in the Christie 1 decision also recognized that DFS entry fees are legally different and distinct from traditional sports wagers. So I think at the end, this, this ruling doesn't really have any force of law today. And ultimately, when it materializes in a judicial dispute, I think the courts are going to come down on the side of these wager, or the, these entry fees not constituting wagers, and there really won't be any long-term repercussions that the industry faces. Certainly, this will not spill over into other areas of federal law, such as the Wire Act or the Illegal Gambling Business Act. It is confined to federal taxation. And the requirement of being in the business of wagering is so narrow and it requires, you know, basically that the operator have a risk of winning or losing based on the outcome of the event. So I think it was wrongly decided. And ultimately, this battle will be decided in the, in the favor of the industry. One point that I that I saw was interesting. I remember when uh, there was a whole legislation about, you know, making poker illegal. I, I remember that because that was a really big thing when I was in college. We were all really into this poker boom. I think I might have got my 10,000 hours in playing poker, but neither here nor there. I remember, though, that the conversation was whether poker was a game of skill or a game of chance. And as someone that's played poker, you know, I've gotten significantly better from hours and hours of playing poker. So someone at, at some point made the distinction when it came to poker that poker was a game of of chance. Same conversation happened with DFS, obviously, not just so long ago. I have a problem, Dan, if this guy's taking definitions from Random House. Um, <laughs> first of all, he should be taking definitions from Webster, because everyone knows that that's the correct dictionary of choice. That's an unofficial sponsor of this podcast. I, I just think at the end of the day, Dan, you're, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. You got to ask the people that understand what wagers are, right? I'm a poker player. I understand that that's a game of skill. I think that DFS to some extent, and you can push back on me on this point, I think it's more of a game of chance than poker is. I think poker is shown over time. You can get better at the game. DFS kind of relies on factors that are somewhat beyond your control. But, you know, I think, Dan, we could both agree a wager on a general sporting event. That's not a definition. It's not a good definition. It's not a good legal definition that that not that shouldn't be something relied on. You're better on asking people like yourself and me and just the gambling community. What qualifies as a wager for someone in the IRS to 
issue an opinion that kind of just shows they have no familiarity with the substance of that they're commenting on, I think is problematic. And that's why it's important to have lawyers like yourself in the space that are kind of fighting back on that narrative. Well, thanks. I, I think it's important because the narrative has been suggested that this is a, a seismic decision that can impact the futures of the company and, and cause all this peril. But you raise an interesting point about legality of poker. All this stuff is decided on the state level, and each state has its own definition of what constitutes gambling or illegal gambling. And in some states like uh, you know that follow a, a quote-unquote predominance analysis where you evaluate whether a skill has more of a dominant role than chance, in states like that, poker is considered legal. But in a state like New York, which is the case you're referring to, it's the, D, it's the D. Christina case from a few years ago. New York adopts a lower threshold for what constitutes gambling. It's a materiality test. And under a materiality framework, poker would be considered gambling. So it really does depend on what state's law will apply. Poker, like fantasy sports, has a separate analysis on a state-to-state basis. And that's one of the major ways in which the IRS's opinion has totally missed the mark. It discounted and considered to be completely irrelevant how state law considers the question of illegality. And the IRS determination of a tax is, it hinges upon whether or not the activity is authorized under state law. So this is an inherently state law analysis. And the IRS counsel, I believe, I wouldn't say she abused her discretion, but she made a, a, a material mistake in judgment in relying on one single dictionary definition, ignoring dozens of cases which clarify what a wager means, and then ignoring the state law skill versus chance dichotomy, which goes to the heart of whether a DFS is authorized or not authorized under state law. So I read a book. It's called Dueling with Kings. Uh, it's really the story of the, the origin story of DraftKings, FanDuel, and it speaks to really you know where Dan got his start in the... Uh, oh, wow. In the sports betting industry, that's it chronicles that you know that growth of DFS. So I, I highly recommend that to anyone that's interested in DFS. Number one, and number two, any of the lawyers that want to know about the legal background. Well, don't read the passages in which I'm mentioned because that's uh, inaccurately stated. Are you it, it, in that book? Yeah, I mentioned in several places in that book. Dueling with Kings is that the one by Daniel uh, Barbarisi? He's a West Dan, Daniel Barbarisi. Yes. Wait, Dan, hold on. I got named in the Westchester Lawyer. I'm their highlight member spotlight uh, for the month of August. Way, way to congratulate me, Dan. I just, just want to point that out there. But Con- oh, Congratulations, Dan. I'm sorry oh, for being so self-focused. You're absolutely on your own, Dan. I, that's just, just lovely. And if you read the book, just, you know, if you get to the provisions that mention me, it's definitely not what I said. And I don't know where he gets this information from. It, it really, really boggles my mind how someone could have pages of recollections of things I supposedly said that I never said. Well, I'm going to still recommend the book because it was a good read. It was very entertaining, just just for my personal degenerate nature of myself. Dan, separate note, speaking of abuse of discretion, I think that's uh, just important. You know, we have a lot of lawyers, law students that listen to this. I had a big win this past week in my legal practice. I got uh, awarded summary judgment on one of my cases. So that's going to go up on appeal, Dan, and we're going to be looking at that same standard, abuse of discretion. So, so, Dan, so Dan Lust will hope for an abuse of discretion, but in reality, in most... No, I, don't want the, I don't want an abuse of discretion. I won on summary judgment. Case dismissed. So no, but you see the opposite. The alternative would be de novo. De novo review would be the oh, appellate court considering I, the issue anew. I want that standard. Do I want them to find that there was an abuse of discretion? No, no, no. I don't but want you, that. 
But but the, the, the applicable standard of review is the most important part of an appellate proceeding and often will dictate who wins and who doesn't win. And for summary judgment, particularly if it's on a contract, it's de novo review. It's like you get a do-over and, and no, uh, there's no presumption of correctness according to the lower court decision. So hopefully some elements of your uh, decision have testimony and factual findings that are going to... It's all testimony. It's a summary judge at the end of discovery. So it's a it's not a contractual case. It's a it's a we'll say it's a uh, high exposure personal injury case. But neither here nor there. That's not sports law. There's more law. So Dan, let us go to a more uh, fun topic. That's our, our third topic of the day. So we talked uh, and Dan, you and I have spent so much time talking about how Rob Manfred might have messed up the baseball baseball's return. And you um, probably unintentionally, you know, were singing the high praise of Adam Silver. I- I'm on, on board with you with that. Sometimes the podcast is more interesting when you and I disagree, but this is one thing that we do agree on. And why do I bring up Rob Manfred maybe messing some things up and Silver not messing things up? That is the NBA's prohibition on what Woj called casual relationships. So, uh, you know, I mentioned this early on. I think it was a calculated risk. If people are leaving the NBA bubble, it's okay to let some family members in. Up and up to four guests are allowed in the NBA. But what the NBA did say, very interestingly, I'm sure the lawyers were involved in this, Adam Silver being a lawyer himself. Essentially, if you're what's kind of characterized as a casual relationship, if you're someone that an NBA player really knows from only online, right, and you maybe you've exchanged some DMs, you are not qualified to come into the NBA bubble. So I don't know if there's some tribunal that's going to weigh in on whether you are a real relationship or a casual relationship. I do not want to sit on that panel. I do not want to be anywhere. I don't want to be a fly on the wall when the NBA players have to tell these Instagram models that they are only casual. But on the on the legal end, all right, we have two lawyers. We have Adam Silver and Rob Manfred. Rob Manfred, on the one sense, there was no punishment initially for the first couple of weeks for going to a casino, for going to a bar. No punishment because in the infinite wisdom of baseball, they maybe they didn't think their players were going to do that. On basketball's end, you can't say that Adam Silver doesn't know his NBA players. On July 17th, last month, an Instagram model, whatever you want to call an Instagram model, Instagram influencer, she made her way into the bubble, took a picture of herself in the bubble, and she said the season's going to be shut down soon because I'm in here. So we joked about Dan Lou Williams, you know, with his uh, chicken wing defense, and we joke about an Instagram model coming into the bubble. But Silver's laying down the law. He's going to filter in your guests, which maybe seems a little big brothery, but I think if you're trying to save the season, you're trying to keep up this scoreless streak with in terms of COVID positive tests. I have no issue with it, Dan. What do you think? Well, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a rule that's necessary, but it, it, it's so ambiguously defined what casual is. I mean, uh, remember the remember the experience of the, the anecdote of Monte Teo, the Notre Dame football player who had he was catfished online and supposedly had this like intense committed relationship with someone he had never met. You know, NBA players have not all of them, but there's just a a, a, a history of NBA players going to strip clubs and, and you know, the models and, and porn stars loving to get photo ops with NBA players. So there's certainly a, a history that justifies a rule like this because, you know, one person gets in the bubble that, uh, it, you know, could, could you know, create a, um, a spread of the, of, of, of the virus. You have to have a zero tolerance policy. And if you're going to limit or have exceptions, the exceptions have to be very narrowly defined to, you know, your family and to, to really close individuals. The whole the goal here, the whole the entire goal here is to keep people out of the bubble, not to make more and more exceptions for people to come in, because that's going to defeat the purpose. The NBA and the NHL have had a pretty exemplary record so far of safely conducting their games. 
games. And what differentiates those leagues from you know Major League Baseball and, and college football and the NFL is the openness of the latter and the cloistered and the protected bubble atmosphere in which those other leagues play. And it bears out in the numbers. So, you know, I give I give Adam Silver a lot of credit for, for clamping down here, even if the standard is somewhat amorphous. On that, Dan, we, we missed the story. It was just right after we finished recording last week. A rookie cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks, it's Kemas Siverand. Yeah, story. he was cut. He was cut, right? He was that the player well, who was cut? He was cut because he tried to dress his girlfriend into, into the facilities wearing a Seattle Seahawks uniform. And they caught him. I'm sure that I think it was video surveillance. They caught him, uh, a girl wearing, I think, you know, pads or, or Seattle Seahawks uniform sneaking her in. So you can break bubble protocol. But you do so at your own risk, and you do so at the risk of your team and the league. So I know, um, you know, we probably could have dedicated a separate topic to this, but this is now a player, a rookie NFL cornerback who's now dismissed from the team and showing that he's, you know, he views himself above the team. So I'm not sure if this guy's going to get another chance. Now, Dan, similarly, I don't want to spend too much time in because we, you know, we, I want to make sure we get to other topics. But going to baseball very briefly, you know, we want to do, I do want to give credit where credit's due on for Rob Manfred. They have switched gears since originally not having a protocol. And then they signed this, assigned these MLB compliance officers to, you know, try to make sure that guys weren't sneaking out and pulling what they did in, in the Seattle Seahawks. So two pitchers, um, Zach Polisak and Mike Clevenger. Clevenger, you know, he's, you know, a, a, one of the best pitchers in baseball for the past couple of years. Those guys broke protocol on the Indians. And, um, you know, there was team meetings where I guess per reports, Polisak got in trouble. And then Clevenger was kind of backing up Polisak at the meeting. And then video surveillance showed that also Clevenger went out. So not not the cleanest situation. The latest development on that front, um, Plesak and Clevenger, I guess, spoke their case to the team to try to be allowed back on. And I don't know how well that was received because uh, Oliver Perez, another pitcher on the team, came back and said, if you are to allow those guys back in the team, I'm opting out of the season. I guess manage, management listened to you know Oliver Perez and whatever other players are speaking up. Both players, both high-level players on the team, Plesak and Clevenger, option to the team's minor league camp. So, you know, credit where credit's due for Manfred and Major League Baseball, they've reversed course in a much more stricter approach. I mean, these guys are high-level players for a competing team. The Cleveland Indians are now no longer with the team. Maybe not canned for good, but definitely sending a message on that. On that, I don't know that Oliver Perez is the best emissary or ambassador for that message. A 39-year-old non-essential relief pitcher. but uh, Non-essential relief pitcher, yeah. Dan. That's did you Did you watch him pitch for the Mets? I yeah, can't I watched him in the league. Mets, I watched destroyed for the Mets, but don't say he's non-essential. That's blasphemous. <laughs> but it does it does underscore the need for spirit de corps within the you know locker rooms and within the, the clubhouse. If you have dissension within the clubhouse over whether some players are violating COVID-19 restrictions, that's a pretty big deal. That's not just the normal scenario. You know, the, the, the players violating these rules place everybody at risk. And for the team not to do anything would create or elevate the risk of having widespread dissension and disharmony within a clubhouse. And that's a that's a killer for any team sport, whether it's basketball, hockey, football, or even something as individual in nature as baseball. Yeah, there is team spirit in baseball. And a number of years ago, the Boston Red Sox had a, a really bad clubhouse dynamic that led to a house cleaning. Manager was fired. I think the general manager was fired. Uh, so a team's success uh, is not just attributable to the talent on the field, but also to the harmony within the clubhouse. And in a COVID-19 environment, you risk alienating the, the vast majority of your team 
if you allow players to skirt the rules without consequences. So, Dan, I, I'm going to push back because this podcast is more fun when you and I disagree. Don't be alarmed. Okay. Don't Dan, be- hold on a second. I want this agreement, but, you know, you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things, which is probably a, a which is potentially a problem because people yep. like to see fireworks. First name here, Dan. I think we're on the same Dan wavelength a lot. The Dan link. Okay, okay. But believe me, there are a number of sports law people out there. If they were my co-host, I would disagree with them on everything. And I think we know who they are, pretty much everything. But with you, I I think we have similar sort of perspectives on on life, on sport. And I don't think we're just being polite with each other. It's just how it goes. And hopefully we still have a, a riveting conversation where we make both points and, and kind of raise the, 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 you know, both sides of the issue. But no, I don't like to disagree just to make great, a great podcast, but feel free to disagree with me. Uh, it's just, not, you're not that guy. I'll, I, I, I'll disagree with you whenever, when I see fit, but Dan, you, you've now criticized Oliver Perez. And I think your Mets fandom uh, is getting to the best of you because Oliver Perez at one point, and then people that don't know me, I'm a I'm a habitual fantasy baseball uh, freak. I've uh, this this past year, I'm I'm taking the year off just because of all the chaos. But Oliver Perez, the last three years, Dan, for the Cleveland Indians, a high level team. This is 2008, 1.39 ERA, 51 appearances. Last year, four 4.0, serviceable, 67 appearances, and now this year, Dan, a sparkling 1.13 ERA. You know, now we're basically a third and third into the season. Oliver Perez has reinvented himself, Dan, and now I'm going to transition. Watch this beautiful transition here. Oliver Perez, right, that was ages 36 to 38. He was with the Mets, Dan, from uh, from ages 24 to 28, and a not-so-shiny 4.71 ERA. Some would say, Dan, some would say, leading our, us to our fourth topic, some would say the Mets are cursed. And now, Dan, let's let's get into our fourth topic. The looming decision from the Mets, uh, the Wilpons, to change ownership. And now it's a decision between Steve Cohn, we'll say the billionaire, or uh, the A-Rod group. I'll let you respond to my Oliver Perez comment, if, if you if you so dare, because I have the numbers. I have baseball reference staring in front of me. But, Dan, take your pick. Oliver Perez debate or Mets ownership debate? Mets ownership debate. I think Oliver Perez. I'm uh, you on the Perez one. I'm going to take okay. that. I'll, I'll give Oliver Perez his due, and it was probably an unfair uh, attack by me on his bona fides as a reliever. Blasphemous, yes. outrageous, but it's okay. Uh, I'll agree with you there. That that went over the line, and not only went over the line, but was incorrect. But uh, make no mistake about it. On the future of the New York Mets ownership, this is essentially the, you know, it's, it's going to dictate how the Mets are for the next generation. And this is a, this is a, this is a franchise that has had owners along the lines of Joan Pace and Linda D. Roulet, the undercapitalized, made off, victimized Wilpons. You would think that the antidote here would be a deep pocketed Steinbrenner-esque owner like Steve Cohen, who would be willing, I think, would be able to pay more than any other bidder. But there are some considerations going on here in that in, in that Cohen has already burned the will ponds once. There may be some some um, you know blowback or, or some bad bitter feelings between how he stood them up uh, the last time around over the control issue, and 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 then. Mets fans, if, if if you were unhappy with with the will ponds and Madoff, get ready for a quarter century of control by Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. Are you freaking kidding me? Alex Rodriguez gets traded to the Yankees. In his first year with the Yankees, the Red Sox break their curse. 
his co-owners or prospective, you know, joint bidders, Vinny Viola, the owner of the Florida Panthers. They've got a really good talent base. They haven't made the playoffs for several years. This is not a sustainable, competent you know, ownership situation in my group. Are you kidding me? A-Rod, who uh, three years, uh, five years ago, uh, the Major League Baseball was was going uh, going all out and trying to dig up dirt on his association with uh, you know with with certain individuals and his and, and his use of illegal performance enhancing drugs. He was at crosshairs with the NFL. Has he re- has he rehabilitated his reputation so much so that now in 2020 he would pass suitability as a as a as a Major League team owner and Steve Cohen, who is worth 13 billion dollars and has been so successful in business that that man would not pass muster as an owner simply because there are some allegations against him regarding, you know, gender pay inequality. Certainly those should be looked at very strongly by Major League Baseball. But uh, I, I really feel for Mets fans here because they're going to likely end up with an undercapitalized ownership group helmed by uh, by Alex Rodriguez, or they're going to end up with the Harris Blitzer group that already owns, I think, three other you know major professional sports franchises. Someone like Steve Cohen could make the Mets his equivalent of George Steinbrenner's Yankees. And in, in this day and age, without a real salary cap in baseball, the spending money doesn't guarantee long-term success or, sta- or sustainability, but it's better to have than to not have. And being able to compete for some of the highest end free agents and to really put money into the into the salary in, into player salaries and make the and make the Mets one of the top two or three, you know, well-paid, you know, players, uh, you know, in the group. I think that, I think there's a correlation between paying your players, competing for free agency, uh, being able to be in the mix for any big time player who might be available in a trade that's available if they go with Steve Cohen, but an Alex Rodriguez group, I think is going to be much more bottom line oriented. And to be quite honest, Alex Rodriguez has made a lot of money playing pro baseball, but he's not a billionaire. Steve Cohen is worth $13 billion, and I think that frightens uh, a lot of the ownership community within Major League Baseball and maybe steering the Wilpons uh, to a safer bidder that won't have the uh, same issues in gaining uh, approval of the ownership group. So, Dan, I, I won't preface it with I, I'm intending to disagree with you, but the, the discrimination charges against Cohen I want to say against Cohn, but that are, we'll say, in the- Yes, uh, this company. Yeah, well, it's the company is Stephen A. Cohn Capital. So there's sexual discrimination allegations that were filed against his company in 2018. So, uh, you know, separate and aside from that, there were securities fraud charges that were brought up against, never against Cohn, but against different of his associates. So the company had to get hit with different securities ramifications, but Cohn himself never hit, uh, has been charged directly with any of these Things, but I, I think it's still important to note that the company, his company, is being charged with discrimin- sexual discrimination. So if we're going to lambast Dan Snyder, you know, how did the sexual discrimination go on under his roof? You know, there there is an argument that Stephen A. Cohn does have some accountability for this. If it goes under his roof, he's the head of the company, Stephen A. Cohn Capital. I don't think it's. I don't think. I mean, I, I think that's a fair strike. So now to your other argument, A. Rod definitely has skeletons in his closet. I don't know if I've never heard of them. Maybe they they exist. I've just never heard of them any type of sexual discrimination of that nature. But A-Rod, um, you know, it's no secret, was accused of cheating and, and selling the sport. 
Pete Rose, who bet on baseball, right? Um, I think he's admitted this to some extent. My wife and I watched this great, you know, ESPN documentary on, on Rose recently. But A Rod's allegations aren't so different from Pete Rose's allegations, and Pete Rose is banned from the sport. So I, I got a great. They may be worse. I mean, Alex Rodriguez's transgressions impacted right. the outcomes of games. We don't know whether maybe, maybe Pete, Pete Rose, Rose did too. I'm not here to, to you know adjudicate yeah. Pete Rose, but you bet on baseball. He says he only bet on himself. If he bet on the other team, I mean that that would that could also impact the games. But you know the, the point being, and I got this great question from someone on Twitter: Is there you know and, and uh, you know 2.6 billion was the original bid by Stephen A. Cohn, and now there's a report. I don't know if it's confirmed, but that Wilpon hates Stephen Cohn so much that he's going to make Cohn pay double what anyone else is going to pay. That that's going to be the ask of Cohn. Whatever the final bid is of somebody else. You're going to pay double that if you want the team. Now, Dan, is there any legal hurdles to to doing that for the Wilpons actually demanding that Cone pay double in order to get the team? Is there any legal issues that we're looking at there? Yeah, the uh, mental capacity of Fred Wilpon <laughs> to accept, <laughs> you know, to uh, to turn down a bid from Steve Cohen that might generate uh, <laughs> tens of millions of dollars more just because of a grudge. You know, this is not a public company. Fred Wilpon doesn't have to satisfy, you know, shareholders or an outside board of directors. It's his company. He owns the Mets along with Saul Katz. And that would be, and, and I'm, I'm sorry for mincing words here and, and using my second profanity, but that would be Fred Wilpon's go away, fuck you to Mets fans. That's to, your second F-bomb on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, to sell the team to somebody who would be the least or not the most capable owner in terms of financial might. Listen, Fred Wilpon and the Wilpon family, by comparison, their legacies are going to look worse and worse and worse with every year of a Steve Cohen-owned group or, 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 or quite frankly, any other ownership group, but selling to, to Cohen, who in turn would raise raise the payroll, start going after free agents, it would really minimize Wilpon's legacy as a Mets owner to the extent he even deserves a legacy. He really doesn't. I mean, his, you know, he's had some successes, but overall, you know, the last 10 years post Madoff, the Mets have not been a model franchise. So I think for some ego reasons, jealousy and insecurity, he would like to see someone other than Steve Cohen own the team because of how bad Cohen's ownership of the Mets would make Wilpon look in retrospect, even though his reputation really is at an all time low right Right now, I mean, he has a son basically running the organization, his son with absolutely no qualifications in management and business, basically a failed baseball player whose sole qualification for running a major franchise is that he's in the same bloodlines as uh, as Fred Wilpon. And you could make the case that, yeah, Hank Steinbrenner and, and, and the Steinbrenner family is along the same lines. Their you know, qualifications are no different than Jeff Wolpons, but one organization is well run. The other is an absolute mess. And for Wilpon to do anything other than than do what's in the best interest of Mets fans, I think would be would be such a shame. And the way it's headed right now is I think he's so insecure and feels so bitter about that sale price or that sale collapsing that he would look for any reason to sell to someone other than Steve Cohen. And I don't think it's going to require more than double the amount. But if the Mets were, were worth or, or if the bid on the Mets was $2.6 billion pre-pandemic, I can't see how it approaches anything close to that 
in the current environment. I think we're looking at a $2 billion range. If Cohen wants to grab the team, he can outbid anybody. It's just a question of playing poker. How high does he need to go? If he's willing to match the pre-pandemic sale price, it's his, unless Fred Wilpon takes utter leave of his senses. My only concern is that Wilpon's son is not named Dan, or else I I would totally trust his judgment on running the team. But seriously, though, I mean, A-Rod, I don't, I can see the argument why A-Rod would be better for baseball overall. I mean, baseball throughout this pandemic, Dan, has been getting hammered just in PR in terms of ratings. Basketball and, and hockey have emerged from this as, you know, with cogent leadership and they have the right people at the helm. Baseball, I think just the optics, and we'll see what the ratings bear out as we get toward the end of the season. I just think baseball looks very, we'll say odd in an empty ballpark with the fan noise. I just think the whole experience is very odd watching it. I have a hard time watching baseball games. And for someone like an A-Rod, for an J-Lo, baseball has never had that level of an owner. Someone like Mark Cuban, who's in the spotlight, they've just never had I mean, it's maybe Steinbrenner to some extent, but that's not the same, we'll say, like A-list levels of, of celebrity. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it would be a bad thing for baseball. And I will say, Dan, could we assume that Steve Cohen's going to put his billions into the team? I don't know if we can assume that Steve Cohen's a billionaire businessman because he's made really smart decisions with his money his whole life. I mean, uh, we've seen, Dan, and maybe a handful, a handful of owners own these teams and they own them to make a profit across sports. We've seen that buying a major league team in any sport, like the Clippers or the Bucks, those the revenue of the, and the value of those organizations double, triple, quadruple in like ten years. So it's the best mm-hmm. asset to own. I always thought, Dan, if, if I'm a multi multi billionaire, the best asset for me, not not necessarily like what's cool and what's not cool, the best asset from a dollars and cents level could just be buying a team, and then. You know, if you don't run it as poorly as the Wilpons, the value will go up. It's in, it's the New York Mets. So I don't necessarily think it's a guarantee that Wilpons going to inject, you know, his fortune into the Mets. When, Dan, um, as we started the conversation, my opinion on this is the Mets are still cursed. So why are you putting billions into a team that's going to finish in without the championship anyway? Well, you know, every every team's fandom thinks that they're cursed. I'm a Rangers fan. I thought the Rangers were cursed for 54 years. Eventually, they won a Stanley Cup. The Giants had 13 years of lousy football. Can you imagine 13 years? 13 years is not an eternity. They won four Super Bowl titles. The Jets, oh my God, going back to 1969, they too will win a Super Bowl at some point. I think it's a long way to compare Alex Rodriguez to Mark Cuban. Mark is Mark has real money. Alex is just the front person for the ownership group. And the real money behind the scenes is Vinny Viola from the Florida Panthers of the National Hockey League. I think A-Rod is a magnet for controversy. Everything that he's done over the course of his professional life attracts a lot of negative attention. He just can't help himself. And a leopard is not going to change his spots. He's going to put his foot in his mouth. He's going to do something that is, you know, you know, just PR foolish. I mean, if Derek Jeter, who's conducted himself in an exemplary fashion as a player, is experiencing a rocky road as as a, as a Major League Baseball team owner, although this year, I think he's been vindicated. I think the future of Alex Rodriguez as a team no, owner Jeter's been vindicated here. This is the biggest hit he's taken. This His team was infected with COVID. The team is is performing much better than expected. He made some difficult player personnel decisions that he was lambasted for at the time. And I think, I think over a long term, he will likely be vindicated. But the point is, if Derek Jeter can't enjoy a, a, a smooth honeymoon, Alex Rodriguez, who's a magnet for controversy, no matter what he says or does, is going to have it 10 times worse in the crucible of New York City 
Every action, every step is magnified times 100. He's not exactly one of the smoothest people in dealing with controversy. And I think I think he'll bring more of the same to the Mets if he's the symbol and the leader of this organization, somebody who hasn't accomplished anything of the magnitude of either Steve Cohen or the principals in the Harris Blitzer group. I mean, he's just basically a front person for somebody else's money. I have this sneaking suspicion that you just don't like A-Rod. I think that's, I, I'm pretty confident at this point. I watched him for, for many years. I loved him as a player. I absolutely loved him as a player, but there's just so much bad karma and bad juju around him that I, I can't imagine that that goes away. And as, as an owner, it's going to be completely different. Uh, and I'm going to disagree, Dan. I, I think that A-Rod could be good for the sport. And you're right. He's not like Cuban on a dollars and a businessman level. That's probably closer to, to Cone. But on a celebrity level, who knows who the Blitzer group, who knows Stephen Cohn? Yeah. You and I know them, but the, the sports fans in general, the one that you want to turn on the eyeballs, they know who A-Rod is. And I, and I want to kind of push back with you a little bit on Jeter. Jeter started off in a rocky road because his first trade, right? Let's get rid of Giancarlo Stanton. That's my first move as, as you know, part of the Marlins. Who am I going to trade him to? Let's trade him to the Yankees. That makes so much sense. So Jeter, I think, rightfully got crushed for doing that. It, the optics did not look good at all. So, you know, wait, wait, wait. you know, who want, Dan, you know, who wants a mulligan on that trade? The Yankees who are now stuck with Giancarlo. Why, they want Castro. So Stalin Castro is not that good, but the optics look terrible. I mean, I'm just going to say Yankees can afford Stanton's salary. That's one thing. But the optics of you have 30 teams to trade Stanton to. And, you, and I remember you want to hear the crazy part. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. It was a deal done to trade Stanton to the Giants. And he I mean, the Giants are terrible now. Probably would be a little less terrible with Stan, but that's how to look terrible as, as an owner of a team. I mean, we kind of, this isn't necessarily a legal topic at this point, but I think that A-Rod, I mean, A-Rod's, A-Rod, Dan, and you can, you can talk as much, you know, what he did poorly in his career, you know, in the whole steroid cloud that he was involved in. A-Rod has completely reinvented himself. A-Rod is... You know, he's as, now aligned as, as a mediocre t- as a mediocre TV analyst. I, I think those who want to see a rod in ownership are those who have to watch him and endure him on Sunday night baseball. I, I'm just going to tell you, Dan, a rod was probably his his Q rating, whatever you want to call it, was like mm-hmm. zero when he was in Major League Baseball. And now the guy and he's at he's on the verge of and I'm watching stories by Bob Nightingale that he's the front runner, that he's the, he's the Mets pick. He's Major League Baseball's pick. The guy's reinvented himself. So. I don't necessarily okay. think it would be a bad thing. I don't. I don't think it would be a bad thing. Steve Cohn would would not speak. He'd be in the background. Maybe he'd spend money. Maybe he wouldn't. You know, A Rod's going to be at the top of this. And I think baseball. I think they're getting hammered in the ratings. And I think a guy like A Rod might be a lightning rod for that. Dan, uh, I don't have anything else on on this topic. Anything else to add before we we uh, close up uh, on the on the Mets debate? No, no. I think I think it's been an eventful week. A good episode. We've covered a lot of a lot of terrain. And you know, this is not. Uh, we can't go two hours here. Eventually, when we get our own show, maybe we could do a two hour block. But I think this covers uh, this covers a lot of you know a lot of territory at least for this week. You know, it's it's been another good one, and I look forward to seeing what's in store for the sports law world within the next week. We may be getting decisions in the Zion Williamson case. And of course, the COVID-19 impact on the sports world is never ending. And uh, the stories that we talked about earlier in this episode, we'll we'll get a little further down the pike and we may see some resolutions as to some of these initiatives. So I I expect another similar week of great content. As Dan mentioned on the last episode, it, it really helps grow the show if you can leave us a review on Apple and rate the podcast as well. Five star reviews are very much appreciated. And that being said, Dan, I think we can put this in the books and we will see you next week 
uh, on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. As always, Dan is on uh, on social media at Wallach Legal, myself, Dan Lust, at Sports Law Lust, and the show Conduct Detrimental is at Conduct Detrimental. To all of our listeners out there, thanks as always, and to Mike Piazza, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>